Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 5, verses 10 and 12. So I had uh, originally intended to use this week as a kind of study week. Uh, We're just a couple of weeks away uh, from the end of Philippians. And unfortunately, I haven't had a lot of time to study the next book in our series yet. And so my goal at the beginning of this week was uh, to dust off a message I hadn't preached in at least a couple of years, one that I hoped would still be relevant to our time here in Philippians, and just use that for a week to sort of buy me some time to get my studying in. Uh, The only problem is that as I got into thinking about this week's passage, uh, I started to think about it in relation to next week's passage, I ended up getting a lot more excited about this text than I had anticipated. Uh, Because these two texts, this week's and next week's texts, they really go together. They complement each other. And as I've thought about this week's passage, I realized that while it was a passage that I have preached before, I didn't want to preach it the same way. There are some things I want to say about this week's text that I didn't say back when I preached on it a few years ago. And so, uh, just like that, there went my study week because I had an entirely new sermon to put together. Uh, So if I end up preaching an old sermon in a couple of weeks, uh, maybe after Philippians, that's why. I may still need to get one of these study weeks in. In the meantime, I want to direct your attention to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. The reason why I want us to go here is because of what Paul is about to get into in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, particularly what he writes in verses 12 and 13. These are incredibly cherished words which are uh, treasured by Christians in every kind of station and situation that you can imagine. Uh, Paul writes, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Those last words in particular, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, are especially cherished by Christians everywhere and in all times. Unfortunately, they're often misapplied. In fact, they're misapplied so often and so badly that when I was first taught the appropriate principles to apply in biblical interpretation, my teacher used this text as a case study. It was the example he lifted up of what happens when you rip a passage out of its context. I can still remember the image he used. He said, we tend to use this verse in a motivational sense, as a kind of pep talk, right? That we can overcome any obstacle that's in front of us. He said, you probably have seen this verse printed on a poster hanging in the locker room of a Christian school with some muscle-bound football player, you know, sitting on a weight bench, sort of dramatically leaning forward with his head down, exhausted, towel around his neck, dumbbells scattered around his feet. And there printed on the bottom of the poster is, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And when he said that, I knew exactly what he was talking about. I, I had seen a poster like that before. The description was spot on. And they said that's how Christians like to interpret this verse. 
They want to use it to say, yes, I can get that scholarship or that big job promotion. Yes, I can lose 40 pounds because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then he pointed out that Paul was in prison when he wrote these words. And he posed the question, do you think Paul meant that he could have walked right out of the jail cell in that moment if he had wanted to? And the answer was obviously no. I mean, we even saw this back in chapter 1. Paul actually wanted to be released. And he expected to be released, and yet he didn't interpret that as a guarantee. He didn't know for sure that he would be delivered. He was still preparing himself for the possibility that he wouldn't be released. And so this raises the question, what does Paul mean when he says that he can do all things through Christ? And again, this brings us back into the context, back, to, back into what he says in verse 12 about being content in every situation, both in abundance and in want. And it shows us that when Paul says, I can do all things, he's actually talking about his perseverance in the faith. It's like I've said throughout our study of Philippians, the Philippians are suffering for their faith, and as they suffer, some have apparently walked away from the faith, apostatized out of a love for this world, they want comfort, and they've left Christ to get it. And others, of course, have merely considered the adoption of key compromises to the faith. And Paul is telling the Philippians, listen, I appreciate the money you've sent me, but I want you to know that I'm not dependent on it. I've learned how to keep going both in abundance and in want. I know how to survive both the obstacles and the distractions. This isn't necessary for my proclamation of the gospel. He's saying that specifically as he suffers for his faith. Meaning Paul isn't just suffering the general rigors of life when he writes those words. It's not like he's lost his job or his wife or found out that he has cancer when he writes those words. No, he's suffering for the gospel. He's suffering for the fact that he says there's no other king but Jesus. He's suffering for the fact that he says that there's salvation in no one else, that a Jew mustn't keep the law in order to be saved, but to believe on the crucified and resurrected Christ. And he's saying that he's learned how to do that and both suffer and prosper, which is interesting in and of itself, by the way. He's learned how to prosper without being pulled off topic. He keeps proclaiming Christ anyways. And he does it with contentment and even joy. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying, I've learned how to persevere. I've learned how to endure in each and every circumstance without quitting, without walking away. So thank you for the gift. I do appreciate it. But I want you to know I don't rely on this. It's not the source of my strength. Something else is. And next week, we're going to explore how Paul does this. We'll explore the secret of gospel-minded endurance. But first, I want to prepare us for that text by taking a look at Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 5, 10 through 12. And I want to begin by reading an article that I stumbled across this week. Uh, this is a rather short article, uh, and it makes some incredibly powerful points which I think can set us up uh, very well, both for this weekend for next. And so if you don't mind, uh, I know this is a bit unusual, but I actually want to read you the article in its entirety. 
Uh, it's written by David French, who's a senior writer, writer for the National Review. And it's entitled, Another Pop Culture Christian Loses His Faith. It's written as a response to the apostasy of two prominent evangelicals that have hit the news lately. If you don't know who they are, I'm not going to try to describe them to you. It's not entirely relevant to the point that French is trying to make. Uh, and believe it or not, I found this article on Yahoo News, of all places, which is kind of an unusual uh, place to run into an article like this. However, it's very good. French uh, writes this. It's happened again. For the second time in three weeks, a prominent, at least in evangelical circle, circles, Christian has renounced his faith. In July, it was Josh Harris, a pastor and author of the mega best-selling purity culture book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. This month, it's Hillsong United songwriter and worship leader, Marty Sampson. For those who don't know, Hillsong United is one of the most popular and influential worship bands in the modern era. It was born at Hillsong Church in Australia, and its albums routinely top the Christian charts. In fact, Billboard's chart history gives it no fewer than eight number one Christian albums. It's a powerhouse in what my former pastor derisively referred to as the Jesus is my boyfriend style of worship music. Now, their songs featured heartfelt, simple lyrics pledging undying Christian love and devotion. They also happen to inspire millions of Christians across the, the globe. The relative lack of theological depth to much of Hillsong's music has brought a predictable response to Samson's announcement. Shallow songs, shallow theology. But I'm not sure that's right. Of course, only Samson knows his heart, but I want to focus on something else. Parts of his Instagram announcement of his change of heart just don't ring true. I won't paste the entire statement, but this part stood out to me. So this is from the Instagram post. It says, this is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love, yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. French then continues. He says, what is he talking about? No one talks about preachers falling, miracles, alleged biblical contradictions, or the challenge of hell. I take a backseat to no one in decrying youth ministries that concentrate more on ultimate frisbee than on catechesis or on pastors who focus on self-help to the exclusion of sound doctrine. But you simply cannot grow up in an evangelical church without discussing many of these topics incessantly. Yes, you can pass in and out of church, attend casually without going to Sunday school, and sometimes hear only therapeutic messages from the pulpit. But if you live in the church as he did, you have real trouble believing his words. You also have seen the, many, the same thing he, uh, many times. Adults fall away in the face of the pressures of the world, rationalizing their departure with words that ring true to everyone except Christians who know what the church is really like. As our culture changes, secularizes, and grows less tolerant of Christian orthodoxy, I'm noticing a pattern in many of the people who fall away. Again, only Samson knows his heart. They're retreating from faith, not because they're ignorant of its key tenets and lack the necessary intellectual, theological depth, 
but rather because the adversity of adherence is increasingly countercultural, um, uh, to increasingly countercultural doctrine grows too great. Put another way, the failure of the church isn't so much of catechesis, but of fortification, of building the pure moral courage and resolve to live your faith in the face of cultural headwinds. In my travels around the country, one thing has become crystal clear to me. Christians are not prepared for the social consequences of the profound cultural shifts, especially in more secular parts of the nation. They're afraid to say what they believe. Not because they face the kind of persecution that Christians face overseas, but because they're simply not prepared for any meaningful, adverse consequences in their careers or with their peers. C.S. Lewis famously said that courage is the form of every virtue at its testing point. In practical application, this means that no person truly knows if he possesses any virtue until it's tested. Do you think you're loving? You'll know you truly love another person only when loving that person is hard. Do you think you're truthful? You'll know only when telling the truth hurts. Soldiers are familiar with this phenomenon. Most men who travel to the battlefield believe themselves to be brave, but they know they're brave only if they do their duty when their life is on the line. He says, earlier this summer I spoke at an event in Georgia and discussed what I called the courage cure to political correctness. Are you afraid? Speak anyway, with humility, grace, and conviction. The law protects, but the culture resists you. After I spoke, a man came up to me and said, that's fine for you to say, but you don't know what corporate America is like. I told him that I did know, and that I've experienced its bite. He said, no. He said, it's like East Germany now. I asked him if he had tested that proposition, if he had shared his beliefs in any meaningful way. He said no. He'd preemptively silenced himself. That's one version of failing in the face of adversity. Another version is represented by the person who simply wilts, who adopts the critiques of the secular world and lobs grenades back at the church as he leaves. Are you faithful? I'd submit that you don't know until that faith is truly tested, either in dramatic moments of crisis or in the slow, steady buildup of worldly pressure and secular scorn. As the worldly pressure and secular scorn continue to mount, expect to see more announcements like Josh Harris's and Marty Sampson's. Expect to see more friends and neighbors retreat and conform. The church has its faults, yes, but the blame will lie less with the culture that failed, uh, a church that failed to instruct than with a person who didn't ultimately have the courage to believe. I want to ask you a question, ladies and gentlemen. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And if you think so, how do you know? Is it because you're willing to check all the right theological boxes? Is it because you're willing to affirm that Jesus is the Son of God, for instance, and that He died on the cross for our sins? If so, understand the Scripture tells us that even the demons believe and shudder. Is it because you fear God's wrath and hope to escape eternal punishment? Again, the Scripture warns us that Esau found no room for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. You think of the demon called Legion, and when they see Jesus, they cry out, 
What have you to do with us, with me, Jesus, son of most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Luke even says they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So again, the demons believe and shudder. It's not enough to merely fear God. So again, I ask you the question, how do you know you're a Christian? The scripture exhorts you to examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. And that exhortation is based on the idea that true faith, genuine faith, saving faith, manifests itself in obedience. It doesn't just believe about Jesus, but places faith in Him. Meaning the genuine Christian doesn't just know the right facts about Jesus, they actually like Him, they love Him. And that love manifests itself, as Jesus says in John 14, 15, in obedience to His commandments. So the Scripture exhorts us to look at our life and confirm our calling by putting on these characteristics that prove our faith is real. It even calls us to examine ourselves and see if these characteristics are evident in our life. So what evidence is evident in your life that demonstrates that you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It's like what Jesus says in John 15, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can the Christian unless they abide in Jesus. And whoever abides, therefore, in Jesus shall bear much fruit. And in the same way, every branch that does not bear fruit is cut off and thrown into fire and burned because it does not abide in the vine, Jesus. So what fruit can you point to which demonstrates the fact that you are abiding in the vine? You need to be very careful how you ask that question. And you need to be careful on a couple of different accounts. On the one hand, you have to be careful that you don't end up thinking that just because there's some lack of spiritual fruit in your life, that this means that you're not a Christian. This is the problem with looking towards evidence of faith for assurance of salvation. At the end of the day, there's always going to be a reason to think you're not a Christian because there's always going to be some aspect of Christian maturity that's missing. Right? And to put it simply, you're not Jesus Christ. And so you're never going to obey God perfectly, at least not on this side of heaven. So if the measure is obedience, you're always going to have reason to doubt your salvation, and that carries the potential to rob you of the joy you should be experiencing in Christ as you realize that your debt's been paid and you're now completely accepted by God. On the other hand, you also have to be careful that you not confuse those things that come easy to you as evidence of your faith. You go through the fruit of the Spirit, for instance. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if we're being honest, we have to admit that there are unbelievers who exhibit many of those qualities. Some people just express their unbelief more obviously than others. You know, not everyone who lacks faith immediately goes out and becomes a serial killer, right? 
Many. I mean, you think of men like the scribes and the Pharisees, for instance. Many are actually upstanding members of society. They're family men and women and civic leaders. There's obvious virtue in their life. I mean, to be completely honest, I know of some unbelievers who are more virtuous than many Christians that I know. So what's the difference? What's the difference between the virtuous unbeliever and the non-virtuous Christian? And the difference, ladies and gentlemen, is the source of their virtue. You go back to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, for instance. Jesus says that the non-virtuous tax collector leaves the temple justified, whereas the virtuous Pharisee does not. And why? Luke, Luke explains it to us in the introduction to that story. He says that Jesus told this parable, quote, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The Pharisee's problem is not just that he's relying on his works for his justification, but that he is self-righteous. It is a righteousness that he's producing by his own power than, rather than a righteousness that he's receiving through faith. The scripture always says that the righteous live by faith, meaning they receive their life from God. That's true in a justification sense, certainly, but it's true in a sanctification sense as well. Again, the one points to the other. The sanctification that occurs through faith, rather than according to one's own power, points back to a justification that's been received through faith. Again, the righteous live by faith. That's what distinguishes the Christian from the non-Christian. The one depends on God as a characteristic of their life. Get this, right? They have a relationship with God built on dependence and love, and the other doesn't. This is why I say you can't confuse the things that come easy to you as evidence of your salvation. Some people don't struggle with greed, for instance. Not because the Spirit has done a work in their, in their heart, but because they just happen to worship some other idol. Their idol, for instance, may be the praise of man. They desire respect. And because of that, they're very easy to set off. They struggle with anger. It's very easy for the person in this situation to salve their conscience by saying to themselves, well, I know I'm a Christian because although I struggle with anger, I can see the spirits working in my life through the fact that I don't struggle with greed. I don't have this inordinate love for money. When the fact is they've never struggled with a love for money. Their so-called righteousness isn't something that's been produced by the Holy Spirit through faith. It's not something that changed about them when they came to Christ. It's a characteristic they've carried with them their whole life. It's not a work that's been wrought by God. It's a form of self-righteousness that's produced by their own flesh. I think the C.S. Lewis quote from this article that I read to you captures it perfectly. Let me read the paragraph to you one more time. French said, 
C.S. Lewis famous, famously said that courage is the form of every virtue at its testing point. In practical application, this means that no person truly knows if he possesses any virtue until it's tested. Do you think you're loving? You'll know you truly love another person only when loving that person is hard. Do you think you're truthful? You'll only know when telling the truth hurts. Soldiers are familiar with this phenomenon. Most men who travel to the battlefield believe themselves to be brave, but they know they're brave only if they do their duty when their life is on the line. Friends, this is the difference between the virtue of the believer versus the virtue of the unbeliever. The unbeliever is virtuous only when it is easy. The believer is virtuous not only when it is easy, but when it is hard. And what enables him to do this, to be virtuous when it is not easy, is their faith. It's a virtue that's empowered by God to help them do what is not natural for them. I can, I can still remember the moment this point hit me between the eyes. I had been wrestling with my faith for several months, months, and finally one night, I was sitting in a restaurant with my friend, and she said, I don't know, Ryan, it just seems like there's something you're keeping back from God. And at first, I was offended. After all, I was a relatively good person growing up. I had never gotten into much trouble. I was always a good, good kid. Uh, my friends even dubbed me the conscience, <laughs> because I had the habit of interrupting whatever harebrained scheme they had cooked up with the words, I don't think we should be doing this. This isn't, a, this isn't a good idea. I mean, for some perspective, I had co-workers in high school uh, who made it their goal to get me to swear <laughs> because I wouldn't curse. I was squeaky clean. Now, a lot of that started to crumble in college, but even then, relatively speaking, I was a pretty moral person, better than most, as I'd tell myself. So again, I was offended. Who was she to tell me? that I'm not a good Christian. But it was the way she phrased it that got stuck in my head. It just seems like there's something you're keeping back from God. I've been wrestling over Jesus' words in the Gospels for several months by that point. I'd, see how, I'd seen how he consistently told his disciples that he demanded everything, absolutely everything, to follow him. That was different than what I had been told when I was a kid. I had been told that you just needed to affirm the truths about Jesus, whereas Jesus demanded something more than that. He demanded obedience, radical obedience, and a total commitment of one's life. As I drove home that night thinking about what my friend said, it finally dawned on me that I had actually never been obedient to God. A single moment in my life. I was a relatively good person. But listen guys, the reason I was a relatively good person was because I enjoyed being a good person. I didn't like getting in trouble. It scared me. To be completely honest, I wasn't so much a good person as much as I was a coward. Others simply had the courage to do the kinds of things that I wanted to do in my heart, but I feared to do. When it came down to obeying Jesus in the areas that were hard, I had actually never done that a single moment in my life. 
The problem wasn't that I was holding something back. It was that I was holding everything back. And I would tell you today that I became a Christian that night. I realized that I couldn't keep claiming to know Jesus and not do the things He asked even when they were hard. Because that wasn't faith. Faith meant obeying even when it was difficult. Again, it's just like French says, do you think you're loving? You'll know you truly love another person only when loving that person is hard. Do you think you're truthful? You'll only know when telling the truth hurts. That's what faith looks like in action. And that's what distinguishes the Christian from the non-Christian. It's not the total sum of virtue in their life. It's the fact that the Christian struggles with their sin. They try to obey when it's not comfortable. And they do it by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith. To quote Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's the struggle against sin that matters more than the absence of it. So again, I ask you, are you a Christian? If so, how do you know? What's the evidence of your faith? Don't look for perfection, certainly, but don't look at what's easy for you either. Instead, ask yourself, when do I obey when it's hard? When do I do what I know I must do when it's uncomfortable? Because if you can't give an example, if that's not a characteristic of your life, then I'd venture to say that your faith isn't real. It's a sham. You're no different than the Pharisee who has a form of righteousness, but one he's produced himself, and not by faith in the Son of God. And it's with this in mind that I want to give you two points to take away from this morning's passage. Two points which, again, I think set you up well for what Paul is going to explain next week. And those two points are this. Number one, you will suffer for your faith as a Christian. Once again, you will suffer for your faith as a Christian. It's simply unavoidable. In fact, it's unavoidable to the degree that if you never suffer for your faith in at least some respect, then it's probably a sign that you're not a Christian. Your faith isn't real. It's a sham. And number two, you will be rewarded for your suffering. Again, you will suffer for your faith as a Christian, but don't despair, don't lose hope, because your suffering will not be in vain, since God will reward you for your suffering. Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Once again, there are two observations we can take away from this morning's passage. And the first is that you will suffer for your faith. Again, it's simply unavoidable. So if you're unwilling to suffer for Jesus' sake, 
then there's probably only one conclusion that you can come to. You're not a Christian. Your faith isn't real. It's notable this statement occurs in a passage of Scripture known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are this collection of statements where Jesus begins this with this phrase, Blessed are, uh, before filling in the blank. There are eight Beatitudes in total. They start back in verse 2 and they continue all the way up to the last Beatitude, which Jesus actually repeats here in verses 10 through 12. The reason why Jesus repeats this particular Beatitude, by the way, appears to be for emphasis. All the Beatitudes seem to communicate the unexpected. They all call a certain kind of people blessed that we wouldn't normally think of as blessed. And it would appear that this particular Beatitude, uh, in this one, Jesus pulls out a characteristic that is especially hard to think of as blessed. And so he repeats himself to make his point clear. Blessed are the persecuted. It almost sounds like a contradiction in terms. We would never think of persecution as a blessing. But Jesus wants you to know what he means. And that, he, that when he says this, that, that he means exactly what he says. So he repeats himself in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He means exactly what he says. The persecuted are the blessed ones. And again, that's sort of shocking because we don't normally think of the persecuted as blessed. But the truth is, that's not even the half of it. Because you see, in each of these Beatitudes, Jesus begins with a description explaining who is blessed. And then he follows this by saying why they are blessed. And what's notable is that in each of these instances, he actually phrases it in such a way so as to imply that not only are these persons going to be the recipient of the subsequent blessing, but that they alone actually will receive that blessing. You can't see this in the English, but it is there in the Greek. He's saying that they and they alone will be the object of this blessing. So for instance, when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, back in verse 3. You should actually read that as for theirs, meaning theirs and no one else's is the kingdom of heaven. Same way with those who mourn. They alone shall be comforted. The meek alone shall inherit the earth. No one else. In this, it's the same way here. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs, theirs and no one else's is the kingdom of heaven. Or to put it another way, no one who is not persecuted, no one who is not reviled, no one who, about whom people do not utter all kinds of evil against them falsely on Jesus' account will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a characteristic that applies to all kingdom citizens. And this, of course, is why Jesus says that the persecuted are blessed. They don't look blessed here on earth, but the fact is they alone are the ones who will enter the kingdom of heaven. In sum, what this verse tells us is that suffering, and not just general suffering, but suffering for Jesus' name specifically, is one of the inevitable fruits of genuine saving faith. 
So we're not talking about the kind of suffering that just happens sometimes in the course of life, you know, the cancer diagnosis, the layoff at work, stuff like that. Those sort of things happen to unbelievers all the time. And it doesn't point to any kind of a relationship with Jesus. And we're definitely not talking about the kind of suffering that accompanies foolishness and sin. Again, unbelievers experience that kind of suffering too. And it doesn't point to any kind of a relationship with Jesus. What does point to a relationship with Jesus is whether or not you suffer for His name. And Jesus is saying, if that never happens to you, then you are not blessed, since you will not enter into His kingdom. In short, He's telling us that pain, discomfort, and discomfort specifically for His name's sake, is a very normal and regular experience of the Christian life. It doesn't mean that suffering needs to be happening all the time. We'll see this in particular next week. There were moments, even for Paul, when he abounded while on mission for Christ, as well as moments when he suffered want. So by saying that this is a normal or regular experience for the Christian, this isn't to say that it's a constant experience for the Christian. But it is incredibly common. In fact, based on what Jesus is saying here, I'm fairly confident in saying that it's so common that we can say that given a long enough time frame, it's experienced by every Christian. It's a common experience for all of us. And again, it's common enough to the degree that if this characteristic is not present in some form in your life, if you've never been made uncomfortable for your faith, then it's probably a sign that you're actually not a Christian. And in case you think I'm ex exaggerating, just keep in mind what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12. There he says the exact same thing. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who tries to live a godly life, every single one, he says, will suffer some kind of of rejection in the course of pursuing that obedience on a long enough time scale. You simply can't avoid it. If you're wondering why this might be, I think you can distill it down to a couple of reasons. The first, Jesus hints at here at the end of verse 12. He says that you are blessed if you suffer for his name, for, quote, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, we don't tend to think of the persecuted as blessed, and yet we have to admit that the Scripture testifies that this is the common experience of the righteous. And the reason, it would seem, is actually tied back to the beatitude that precedes this one. Uh, other commentators have noted that there seems to be a progression in the beatitudes where one characteristic logically leads to the next. Well, in the one that precedes this one, Jesus notes that it is the peacemakers who are blessed. And in the context of the Beatitudes, you have to understand that these peacemakers aren't just the type that avoid conflicts. They're the type that, verse 6, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Meaning they have a, a zeal for God. And so the, pre, the peace that they try to bring is a peace that comes when the sinner is reconciled to God. 
through repentance and faith. Friends, that's not the kind of peace that fallen man wants. They want God to overlook their sin, to excuse their sin. They don't want to repent from it. In short, they want a peace that comes from God leaving them alone. And the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, they can't be satisfied with that kind of a peace. They can't offer that sort of a peace. And so the inevitable result for this kind of a person in this kind of a situation is rejection and suffering. You see it throughout the Bible. I mean, just to do a brief rundown of the Old Testament prophets. You see it occur in the very first generation of mankind. When unrighteous Cain kills his brother Abel for no other reason than the fact that Abel's offering exposed the inadequacy of his own offering. And then it just goes on from there. Saul despised David for his superior integrity and faith in God. Elijah was pursued by Jezebel after standing against the prophets of Baal. According to tradition, Isaiah was put into a log and sawn in two at the end of his ministry. Jeremiah was beaten and imprisoned for his prophecies against Judah. Zechariah was murdered in the temple. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace for refusing to worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den for refusing to pray to anyone but his God. Nehemiah had to survive several assassination attempts in his efforts to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. In fact, even John the Baptist, who's widely considered to be the last Old Testament prophet, he was beheaded by Herod for denouncing Herod's marriage to his brother Philip's wife. You simply can't make it very long in the world as a peacemaker without suffering some kind of conflict with the world. And this leads us to the second reason why the righteous will suffer. It's because not only will the righteousness of the righteous lead them into conflict with the unrighteous, it's also that when this conflict occurs, they won't back down. They persevere. And they contend for the truth anyways. Again, this is actually a sign of their faith in God. They stand with God even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's unpopular. That's what Jesus says in the parable of the soils, right? He says that there's a certain kind of seed that's sown among rocky soil. And for a little while, it looks really good. He even says this type of seed springs up right away. It gives the most immediate and exuberant response. But then he says that when the sun rises and scorches the earth, this is the first type to wilt away because it has no depth of soil. And he says this is the one who can endure in persecution. The problem is just like what David French observes in his article. They have no depth of faith. They know the right things, but they don't really have faith in them. It's for this reason that Peter says that we should actually rejoice when we suffer trials. 1 Peter 4, 12-14, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Again, he's noting this is a common experience. Why are you surprised that when you act righteous, the world rejects you? That's what's happened throughout history. He says, so don't be surprised. He says, but rejoice. 
insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Again, blessed. We see this again. You're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He says, the kind of character that not only provokes suffering, but also the willingness to endure through it is a demonstration of the Spirit's work in you. He's saying it's a sign that your faith is real, that you possess the spirit of adoption that proves your relationship to God. So rejoice when this happens and you endure it with patience. So this is why Jesus can say here in verses 11 and 12 that only the persecuted will enter into heaven because not only will saving faith produce the kind of character that invites rejection, it also produces the kind of character that will endure it. So again, I ask you the question, is your faith real? If so, there's, here's one question that you need to ask yourself. Am I willing to suffer for Christ? It's just like David French says, do you think you're loving? You'll know you truly love another person only when loving that person is hard. Do you think you're truthful? You'll know only when telling the truth hurts. It's the same way with your faith in Christ. To quote French again, he asks, are you faithful? And then he answers, I'd submit that you don't know until that faith is truly tested, either in dramatic moments of crisis or in the slow, steady buildup of worldly pressure and secular scorn. And friends, Jesus would agree with him. In fact, Jesus puts the matter even more bluntly than this. In Matthew 10, as he prepares to send his disciples out on a mission, he actually warns them at the outset with these incredibly sobering words. Verses 32 through 39, Matthew 10, he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think I've come to bring peace on earth. I do, have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Conflict, discomfort, Suffering, these are the marks of Christian faith. Do you understand? We worship a crucified Messiah. And so if we're going to be like Him, if we're going to be like Him, we can expect that we're going to be conformed to His image, and that means that your life is going to start to look like a cross. I mean, Matthew 10, 24 and 25, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Can it be any plainer? Christ's likeness comes with suffering. And so if you're going to be like Jesus, 
then you need to be prepared to suffer with him. Ask yourself, am I presently suffering for the sake of Christ? And if not, why not? If you're not, it may very well be because of the circumstances. It may be because you're in a time of abounding. You're in a peacetime situation. But in order to discern that, I'd at least ask the question, have I ever suffered for Christ? And if the answer to that question, I think really either of those questions, am I presently suffering or have I ever suffered? If the answer to either of those questions is no, then I think it's worth asking two follow-up questions. Why not? Is it because I'm so void of the character of Christ that there's nothing worth rejecting in me? Basically, are you so slack in your faith that the world can't find anything offensive about you? This was, a, this was the judgment of the famed Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot, of course, very famously died as he tried to bring the gospel to an unreached people group in Ecuador. Uh, the tribe was known to be hostile to outsiders, and Elliot tried to share the gospel with them anyways, and they killed him for it. So this is a guy who embodied the type of attitudes that Jesus is discussing in this verse, and he once wrote this in his journal. He said, We are so utterly ordinary, so commonplace, while we profess to know a power the 20th century does not reckon with. But we are harmless and therefore unharmed. We are spiritual pacifists, non-militants, conscientious objectors in this battle to the death with principalities and powers in high places. Meekness must be had for contact with men, but brass outspoken boldness is required to take part in this comradeship of the cross. We are sideliners, coaching and criticizing the real wrestlers while content to sit by and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. Then listen to this, this is powerful. He says, the world cannot hate us. We are too much like its own. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. Is that you? Is the problem that the world cannot hate you because you're too much like its own? Or, and this is the second question, is the problem that you shrink back at the first sign of trouble? Are you like that corporate executive that David French was speaking to? Is the problem perhaps that you preemptively silence yourself before you ever even get to the point of conflict? Essentially, are you the seed on the rocky soil that springs up all enthusiastic at first, but then immediately wilts away under the heat of the noonday sun? Either way, if, you're, if you've never faced suffering either because there's nothing about you to reject or because you shrink away at the first sign of conflict, either way, if you've never demonstrated that you're willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, or perhaps even if you're presently unwilling to suffer for Him, it's worth asking the question, is my faith real? Because honestly, without those kinds of scars, I don't know you can say with confidence that it is. Because Jesus says right here, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs, theirs and no one else's is the kingdom of heaven. And this brings us to our second point, the, re the reward. 
Again, what we see here is not only that you will suffer for your faith as a Christian, but that you will also be rewarded for your suffering. I know it sounds like I'm sharing a lot of bad news today, but really I'm not. There's a silver lining in all of this. After all, Jesus' point here, right, is that the persecuted are blessed. Again, we tend to not associate persecution with blessing, but Jesus does. And again, that's why he repeats this beatitude. He wants you to understand it's blessing is associated with this. And how are the persecuted blessed? We've already seen the answer. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Again, these are the ones with true faith. And so these are the ones who will participate with Christ in his resurrection on the basis of his perfect righteousness. In other words, if you've taken stock of your life and you realize that you haven't suffered for Jesus' sake or that you won't suffer for Jesus' sake, then you just have to ask yourself what you desire more. Is it the pleasures of this life or the treasures of the next? Going back to Philippians for a moment, we've seen that this is why some of the Philippians have failed to persevere, haven't we? Paul says that there are some that he has often told them and even now tells them with tears who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is why they ultimately fail to stand for Christ. They love the world too much. That's the problem with the seed sown in the rocky soil, with men like those noted by David French, these evangelicals who are unprepared for the kind of adversity that comes with knowing Christ. They're all for religion when it's popular. But once it becomes unpopular... Once it starts to cost them something, once it becomes hard, they immediately wilt away. This is why Jesus often encouraged any prospective disciple to count the cost before following. It's not easy. It's actually very hard. If you're not ready to take up your cross and follow Jesus, then you're not ready to follow him yet. And yet, at the same time, the reward that you'll incur for this suffering makes every ounce of it completely worth it. So next week we'll see where Paul found the strength to endure. But if you're not presently willing to suffer for Christ, it really begins here. In order to, to benefit from what Paul says there, you first need to count the cost and decide, I'd rather have what I can gain through Christ more than what I'll lose on account of him. Only then will the so how do I endure question become relevant. You have to want heaven and then realize that there's a cost to heaven. So recognize you can't have both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You must decide either suffer with Jesus and participate with him in his resurrection or do not suffer with Jesus and be shut out of his kingdom. There is no in-between. So which do you want more? My prayer is that you'll make the right choice, the wise choice, and choose the path of rejection and discomfort, since it is the persecuted who are truly blessed.
for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.